You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Hey, everybody. Before we get to this week's podcast, I wanted to let you know that I've got some big news coming up, like a big announcement, actually a couple. I'm going to announce it first on my blog at theproducersperspective.com. To make sure you don't miss out on this news, go to theproducersperspective.com today and make sure you subscribe. It's in the upper right-hand box. Okay, go there now, subscribe, and now on with the podcast. I want to be a producer with a hit show on Broadway. I want to be... Hey, it's Ken. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the podcast, and I hope it's pulling back the curtain on this business of Broadway. If you're looking to learn more about what makes this industry tick, go to my website, kentdavenport.com, and sign up for my weekly newsletter. I'll send you one email a week, one article about what I'm seeing, trends, insights, marketing ideas on what's happening on Broadway right now. That's kentdavenport.com. Hope to see you there and in your inbox. Hello, everybody. You are listening to the Producers Perspective podcast with me, Ken Davenport. Very excited to have two brand new writers to the Broadway scene this year who are nominated for just about every award this season, including the Tony. They also took home a Drama Desk Award for Best Book, and their musical won the Outer Critics Award, the Drama Desk Award. Please welcome to the podcast the creators of Come From Away, Irene Sankoff and David Hine. Welcome, guys. Hello. Hi. Thank you so much. So all those nominations, all those kudos, of course, from Come From Away. Prior to that, they wrote the cult hit, My Mother's Lesbian Jewish Wiccan Wedding. <laughs> and somewhere along the way, they had their own wedding. Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah, we did. We actually did. We got married long before we tried working together. So we sort of made sure that was solid first before we added <laughs> any more stressors. <laughs> so when did you start writing for the theater? When did you even think that was something you wanted to do? So in 2009, we were married and we never saw each other between day jobs and night jobs. We were trying desperately to make it and make money. And so we decided to do a Toronto Fringe Festival uh, show. We decided to write a musical together, mainly so we could spend the summer together and, and see each other and it went really well <laughs> it took off the uh the merchants in toronto picked it up and we had to quit our day jobs and suddenly we were musical theater writers and now we spend every single day together it was very rare today that we were we were apart for like an hour and, and we we're like what did you do I just, that was very weird <laughs> so tell me about like what were those first few moments of writing together like were you nervous about like oh, i'm writing with my life partner i mean Stephen flaherty lynn aarons were on this podcast and said Oh, collaborating on a musical, it's like it's like being married to your <laughs> collaborator. That's just like that for us, too. Was it, I, I'm so fascinated by this, maybe because I wonder what working with my wife would be like. But were you nervous that it would be difficult, that you taking it to the dinner table afterwards? I, I think so. I was anyway. I know it was it was mostly David's idea to start writing. And uh, what happened was is he wrote the first script for My Mother's Lesbian Jewish Wiccan Wedding. And... I read it and I was like, okay, let me look at this and let me play with it. And, uh, you know, it, it's good. It's good. And then we ran into a friend of ours who said, what I'm so excited about this show is that it's a true story. It's actually about David's mom. And then I went back to the script and went, but we fictionalize everything. Like we just, we just, it was basically drowsy chaperone, but like mix up mayhem and a gay wedding for real. <laughs> so we just, I was like, David, we got to throw this whole thing out. We've got to throw the whole thing out. And it was, it was almost done. Like we just got 
to throw it out and start over. And yeah, I don't think you were too happy with me at that moment, but then you were, <laughs> you just started revenge writing and it ended up being good. Yeah, I was like, ah, this totally doesn't work. See, we're going to put our real life down on paper. Oh, I like this. I like this. We should look, look at this. So this is what, so we have a lot of writers that listen to the podcast. And I think one of the most difficult things that collaborators have to do is tell their partner that this isn't good. This isn't working or not up to what you can do, which I feel like if you, you guys are the best case for this because it's even harder when you have to go to bed together at night. So what tips do you have out there for the other people working in collaborations to say, hey, you can do better than this? So we have a lot of rules. Um, really? Yeah. Oh, so yeah. so uh, we don't we don't talk about the show when we're hungry or tired or angry. It doesn't always leave a lot of time left over at the end of the day. But basically, I mean, I mean, there, there's similar things to being married. I mean, you're, you're trying to avoid arguments, right? Um, we try not to talk about the show in generalities or our, you know, something that we've written like, I don't like it. You, you know, we try to be really specific about it and one of the things that Irene learned at school when she got her master's in acting one of her one of her professors said you know before they even started before they started the scene he said what are you trying to do and how did it go and then afterwards, afterwards how, how did it, did it go, go? Yeah. right so we have a uh, so when we first start out putting anything on paper we send it to each other and we say here's what I was trying to do and here's how I think it went it saves so many arguments because you because you you go into it instead of just saying hey I wrote something what do you think and and the other person has no idea whether you like it whether you hate it whether you think it Think it's the best thing in the world. Instead, it forces you to take a pause and step back and say, "What was I trying to? Do? Did this work?" And then you actually send it to them and say, "I hate this completely, but I do like this one word." And that's a very different thing from "I love everything except this one word." Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. So, and and then it makes the other person take a step back and say, "What do I think about this?" You know, there's there's something really good about not just leaping into to saying something in a marriage and in a partnership, and uh, that's really helped us. Yeah. Love this angry, tired, or hungry rule. <laughs> Only because I literally was in London with my wife over the weekend, and we made a rule whenever she was hungry that she should just eat and not <laughs> wait for me, ever. <laughs> yeah. So these rules are great. You should write a book on, actually relationships as well as uh, <laughs> right <laughs> the next show it is it is hard though like uh, you know trying to keep it out of you know if, if the day went bad it, it like we're lying in bed still talking about the show it's hard to divide your time between married and co-writers but at the end of the day it's something really wonderful about being working with someone who loves you and who you know loves you and who you trust implicitly and who you're focused together on the same goals in life and so you know you know there's nothing behind it, it what they're saying they're literally trying to make you as successful as possible to make the best project possible. And at the end of the day, you go to bed and you know they love you. It's, you know, it's amazing. So what? Uh, you were an actor before mm-hmm. studying mm-hmm. acting, and then you were a songwriter before primarily. And you both transitioned, which is what I, I also love about the story. So what gave you the courage to think that, oh, I, I'm just now going to write. I can, I can just do this now. I guess because it was the Toronto Fringe Festival, and I've seen a lot of Fringe shows, and I've seen some very, very good ones. You know, Drowsy <laughs> Chaperone, Toronto Fringe, yeah. uh, Kink in My Hair came out of the Fringe, but I've seen other shows at the Fringe. And so there seemed to be a lot of room to sort of just get out there and make mistakes and just figure out what our voices were. And, and honestly, you know, it wasn't something that I necessarily 
knew that I was good at at least. So I didn't really have high expectations, if that makes sense. You know, it wasn't like, oh, it's going to devastate me if I get, you know, bad reviews on my writing. It's like, oh. So there's a little bit of a freedom to just going in and just saying things the way I wanted to stay instead of trying to sound like somebody. She has a creative writing degree, by the way. She studied writing. Oh, and she's, I, she's, I've, I've taken a screenwriting course. Once. <laughs> no. <laughs> but I didn't get good grades. That's the thing. Well, like, well screenwriting. Well, That's my writing. Well, we actually re- we, we realized uh, we realized that we first collaborated in her in her last year That's of school right. when I I had I had just graduated the year before and I was hanging out at her res room giving her bad grades and yes. and she was doing a psych degree and a creative writing degree and she had to get her thesis in and so I was I was trying desperately to help edit and we looked back and we we're like oh that was our first collaboration and do you think you'll write another musical together are you started already on something yeah yeah we have we have and we are desperately just trying trying to find time to do that. I, we also have a daughter who's about to turn four and we just moved to the city and we're, we are desperately, <laughs> desperately trying to be like, what does our life look like now? How do we write now in this new city with these, I mean, it's, it's all new to us. Like even when we started our first show, Molly wasn't born yet. So we had all the time in the world. We could start at four in the afternoon and go in the four in the morning and then sleep till three in the afternoon. You know, it, it was fine. And now, no, she's got to get up. She's got to get to school. We got to feed her. We got to pick her. So it's, we're figuring it out. Yeah. yeah. It's also it's, it's like, it's a good champagne problem to have that comfort way still keeps us really busy. And, yes, and, that's true. Uh, and yeah. there's a lot of new projects, you know, coming from there that we're excited about that we don't have time for, but, but yeah, we would love more time and we're, and we're, and we've got a bunch of new things that we're really excited about. So let's talk about that a little bit, because a lesbian Wiccan wedding mm-hmm. come from away, which even your producers on this podcast said, everyone calls it the 9-11 musical. <laughs> so these are interesting subjects for musicals. What draws you to something that and says, ooh, yeah, that, I want to write that for the musical stage? I think, like, when we first started My Mother's Lesbian Jewish Wiccan Wedding, it was, I had written a song called My Mother's Lesbian Jewish Wiccan Wedding, and I used to, I was touring as a singer-songwriter, and the, the whole humor of the piece was just that I said the words My Mother's Lesbian Jewish Wiccan Wedding over and over again. But what happened is we started, I started telling the story, and initially we thought, you know, this is just a story about my family. Um, but it turned out that people were really interested, and they were like, no, that's, that's really strange, and you should turn that into a show. So I, I think I think part of it is stories that that we f- have fallen in love with along the way that we that we sort of get to know. New, you know, the, the Newfoundland story was was something that inspired us, uh, and and then we and then we found even more inspiration by going out to Newfoundland and, and meeting all of the people uh, who had returned for the tenth anniversary. Who you know, every single story was better than the last one, and it was something that we wanted to. You know, every story we were like, I can't wait to tell that to someone. Uh, and there, the music behind that was music that I loved that I had never seen on a Broadway stage that I, I thought would be really fun to to combine in a musical theater perspective. And so there's something about the true stories that we've fallen in love with that we can't wait to share with people. Those are the, that's what that's what's currently you mm-hmm. know inspired us. And at the same time, we're like this is our second music, so we're we're, we're open to lots of things. I, I think for me, I'm I'm drawn to extraordinary stories about love. You know, like about people doing things that are unusual out of kindness or out of love. Like like David's mother's story is about her and her partner meeting and falling in love and then raising David as, as they sort of negotiate their Wiccan and Jewish uh, faiths. And Come From Away is about people who 
who, who didn't have to take people off of planes that they didn't know and not only take them into their town, but take them into their homes. So, I, you know, I, I just like sort of like, you know, like staggering acts of, of being nice. And it's not just <laughs> nice. It's not nice because it's also it's also really brave. Both stories, the people in them are very, very brave and, and really intelligent. Yeah, and strong. Yeah, we talk a lot about how the, the kindness and comfort away is what is what we normally end up talking about, about the generosity. But you know, the fact that the people brought them off the planes, they invited them into their homes, they didn't need to. They could have left them cooped up there. They could have kept them separate, and instead they invited them into their lives. And you know, what could have been seven thousand people, scared and angry and divided, became seven thousand friends and family members. And something really smart and uh, you know, as policy, that's a really amazing thing to celebrate and share. I think we we also look. We always look. For, you know, maybe it's because we're performers as well, but we look for, uh, you know, parts with a lot of diversity that, you know, we always want to write for, for young and old people and people from all backgrounds. And we, we, we want to share stories that we're excited about all over the place. So go back in time a little bit. You make a decision. Okay, we're going to write this musical called Come From Away about what it's about. What's the very first thing you did? Like you're staring at a blank screen. You've got a guitar, a piano, whatever. What's the first thing you did for this music? The thing that we always like, I mean, I think we start with research and talking, and, and that and that leads us so far down. I mean, Come From Away started with what's the story, and then we did a lot of research on the internet. We reached out and phoned people. We watched documentaries. We read books. We read you know forums online of people who had been there. And then we also went on, you know, this was before we had a daughter, so we went on long walks and long car drives where we would just... <laughs> And talk about what it could be and how we were inspired by the Laramie Project. And and what, one of the great things was we applied for a grant. And in applying for a grant, we, we actually identified the people we wanted to talk to, the stories we thought might be interesting, the places we thought we needed to go to do our research, and then just dove in and, and came back with you know a million pieces of paper and a million stories. And, and, and so... That, that's the first thing that really starts us off is this is this long period of research and really diving and talking. in and talking. Yeah. Now you're you're developing this musical and it's affectionately referred to at times as the 9-11 musical. I'm sure many times along the way you had people like you're doing a musical about what? <laughs> How do you deal with any naysayers along the way about subject matter or what you're pursuing? Were you faced with that along this journey? Yeah, absolutely. You know, we we quickly discovered it was more of a, a 9-12 musical than a 9-11 musical. It was about what happened in response to this event. And, you know, when we're we're getting to a time where a lot of people who end up in our audiences weren't even alive at the time or they were that 9-11 or they were three, four years old. And, you know, it's it's uh, like they say at the 9-11 Museum, it's where memory is starting to meet history. And, you know, we're, we're on the same street as Bandstand, which is Second World War. Great Comet. It's not about, you know, a tragedy, but it's also about a time in the past. Set against the backdrop of a war. The set against, this is true. That's right, of course. Uh, Amelie, you know, was the moment, uh, the, you know, there's something triggered by the Diana car crash you know there, there comes a time where where we write stories about our history and you know and this is sort of a sideways angle at it that is something that happened in response to this this terrible event and uh, it, you know and, and it's when we don't we don't focus on that we right from the moment you walk into the theater you see the trees you see the wood you see the blue and you're like oh i'm 
I'm going to be safe here. This isn't anything I don't want to see. Yeah, they say, come to Newfoundland. This is a story about what happened in Newfoundland. And, then, and that was important to us. It's been important to our director, it's our producers, everyone, because we were here on 9-11. My, my cousin was in the towers, but fortunately got out. And we didn't we didn't want to tell that story. Uh, and at the same time, uh, you know, when we went out to Newfoundland, we realized there was so much about what happened out there that resonated with us. We, we were living in New York at a residence for international graduate students. So we were in this community of people from 110 countries from around the world, all taking care of each other, supporting each other through music. There was a lot of musicians who would pull out a piano and start playing, and, and that brought us together as a community. And, and also just what happened in New York, the, you know, the kindness that we saw on the street. I, I remember you could reach out to anyone at any time and say, are you okay? How are you doing? There was, you know, candlelight vigils where strangers would come together. And, and at the same time, we were all putting on theater. We were working on shows at the time, and we didn't expect anyone to come three days after 9-11, and instead they were packed. And I think it was because we all wanted that community. We all wanted to come together and have a shared experience and recognize that we are all in this. And that's and that's one of the things that we've learned about Come From Away is this isn't necessarily a Canadian story. It's, it's not just an American story. This is a universal story that people from all over the world have related to in some way because we're all going through the same thing at the same time. And there's been something interesting about, about we're very careful about the language that you, we use. Um, we, we don't say the words World Trade Center until the very end of the show. And, and we're very cautious with that. And what's been interesting is the, the kids who weren't alive when 9-11 happened come to the show and there's there's even though it's very specifically set in Newfoundland and very specifically set on those days, it becomes a piece about how we can react in any tragedy, how we can react to any event, and hopefully how we can react on any day. Yeah, and I'll tell you, you talk about the look born out of story, born out of love, and that's what I took away from from the show certainly i could never imagine so much joy could come from such an experience and i was here as well and i just credit that so to you guys there's so much love and joy in that musical and it's it's impressive incredibly impressive thank you did you ever think when you were writing it like ah broadway musical someday we'll be at the tony awards we'll, we'll pick up the drama desk no, no. this is us shaking our heads really loudly no no we thought we had a a slam dunk with Canadian high schools and colleges because there was a, there was a little known town in Canada that was mentioned, and I frankly I didn't think we'd ever perform at all in the states, you know, especially having lived here at one point, you know, we we were like, mm, this this is probably not transferable. So every step of the way, we've just been like, uh, okay, you know, let's 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 do this workshop at Goodspeed with students. Uh, okay, let's go to the NAMPT festival. Now we're going to La Jolla. Oh. Okay, you know, like it's just been—it's been amazing. It's been amazing. I do think you will have a slam dunk with Canadian high schools eventually <laughs> if they ever get a chance to perform because it's going to run here a very, very long time. We can't wait. Actually, we're, the whole creative team has, has agreed that like the first high school production in Newfoundland, we are all flying out to, to see. We want to see like sixty kids all playing trees, rocks, Will either of you ever perform in the show? That'd be Anywhere. so fun. Yeah, it would David be so Malone's fun. David Malloy's doing it down the block, yeah. right? A little bit. You could do it at some high school somewhere. Yeah, <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. The high school that I'm teaching at. I will play a yeah. tree. Yeah. <laughs> so you talk a little bit about the developmental process. You had a number of out-of-town tryouts, if you will, right? Mm -hmm. Talk to me about that process. How much did the show change from when you went for the first major stop to where you landed on Broadway? It feels like it's changed like a million different ways, uh -huh, uh -huh. and yet it's still the same show. 
you know the style of the show is still very similar, but there, there's been there's been some pretty big shifts. Um, Sue and Randy, who were who were here, actually said to us, we, we used to have an intermission, and they said this was an experience that everyone went through in one chunk. There wasn't a period where everyone could step back and have a drink and go to the washroom and say, "You think it's going? You want to leave?" You, you know. Um, so we took that out, which cut everything down even more. Chris, Chris Ash, really into challenging us to you know raise the tensions, find the connections, streamline it smoothly. There's been a million questions he's asked us, and, and it feels like we've challenged every single word of the script. We've there's some characters who we hadn't interviewed when we started uh, at the beginning. So mm-hmm. there's a there's a mother of a firefighter in Gander who befriends mother of a firefighter in New York, and we'd only met Beulah in Gander, but we haven't met Hannah here. So along the way, we met her and interviewed her, and that, that gave us permission to write a song for her when we first came into New York. Who do you think you learned the most from on the road to Broadway? From Chris, from your director, from your audiences, or from the reviewers? Oh my gosh. You know, I think for me, it was really young people in the audience. You know, I, I you know, theater was such a, such an obsession of mine when I was a kid, and I just... I love to get feedback from from young people and I really sort of take it to heart because they're also like the harshest critics like you then I never expect them to like the show and I'm always so glad when they do but I you know I loved when they told us at one point that you know it, it moved at a pace that they were used to and I was like okay keep that in my head and you know if, if they don't get something that's happening on stage it, it probably means it's not quite clear enough and you know, we would go back and look at it again because, again, a lot of a lot of these a lot of these people, uh, the kids, weren't alive at the time. Like I remember at one point, someone asked, like, "Why didn't she just use her cell phone on the plane?" And I was like, "Okay, so we really need to go back and say and remind everybody that, like, yeah. you know, we that it wasn't everyone did not carry a cell phone, especially if you're going to Europe. You didn't bring your cell phone. You know, a few people might have, but you know, they would. They'll <laughs> so many stories we we got. You know, they're just like cell phone ran out of battery, cell phone ran out of battery, and I was like, why was everyone's trying? We all work with chargers, but, you know, it just wasn't a thing. Yeah. Yeah. think we've learned from everyone. I mean, Chris, yes, Chris yes. in particular has been uh, amazing. And, you know, right up until the very, you know, until opening on Broadway, he was, he was still challenging us uh, on yes. things. And, but also, you know, Kelly Devine and Ian Eisendrath, that the, the, that five-person team and with Sue and Randy and Kenny and Marlene of Junkyard Dog have become this creative unit that, you know, we've spent so many times just hashing things out and pushing things around and trying things differently. But even our actors asking us questions and our design team suggesting some thing and then I like I remember being at the Royal Alex in Toronto and we were coming to see the show over and over again and I realized the ushers are watching the same show over and over again and they're and they're all theater people and and I bet they have some pretty and so I went around and I said do you guys like what drives you crazy about the show like what's one thing you would fix and a lot of them had something that like a like a really smart note that and and a couple of them got integrated into the show yeah Um, Yeah. and then and then the people that we actually interviewed would come to the show Beverly Bass has been now 70 times to the show Uh, her husband Tom recently uh, like right before we opened gave us a note he's like no I think it was after we opened oh yeah yeah, it might have been he said I think I noticed something and we were like Oh, you're right. And we actually were like, can we change that? Or we change, change, like, it was like one small word. But, and Beverly noted something in her song about how you mixed up the order of when you get your flight training and when you take your first flight or something. So we, we got notes yeah. from them. I, like, in general, we've, we've tried to be open to everything and at the same time take the note and step back and say, you know, are they giving us a solution, you know, or, or are they telling us where a problem is so we have to fix it? And we've tried to go back to what we were originally trying to do, but listen to everyone at the same time. That was my next question. 
question because like, I've just met you, but you seem like such nice people. <laughs> Thanks. That you're Canadian. You All too. Canadians <laughs> are nice. So, and also this is new for you, right? So yeah. this is your your first big Broadway show. You're so you're Canadian and nice. So your first instinct is probably whatever anyone tells us to do, we're just going to do because we're like guests at this giant party. You've got incredibly nice producers as well, but they've got yeah. a Tony on their shelf, you know, for Memphis and things. How do you say, you know what? No, I don't care. We may be new to this party, but this is the story we want to tell. Because in the theater, the writers are the ones that have that ultimate say, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and that came as a surprise to me sometime in La Jolla. Like, I think Chris had to say to me, like, if you don't want to do this, if you don't like this, then you can say no. I'm like, I can. And, I'm, and he's like, yeah. And I'm like, I don't want to get fired. He's like, fired from your show? Like, he was just like, he didn't make fun of me. Now he might because he knows me better. But he was just like, yeah, no, that's not going to happen. Uh, you're not getting fired. And I'm like, and I, yeah. And I was like, okay, yeah, no, I don't like it. I don't want I don't, I don't want to do that, that number that we just spent all day on. Yeah, because <laughs> when we were in La Jolla, we actually, uh, we rewrote the opening number of the show and staged it and designed it and had it, had it lit and choreographed and everything. And we were all all looking at it being like, no, maybe. And Chris came over to us and said, well, why don't we just put it in tonight? And we had been agonizing about it. And Irene was like, I don't want to put it in. Yeah. Let's not put it in. And we and we went back. And But by going on that journey, we actually found a better way. Yeah. And then yeah. combined it with something else. So I, I, like that's been that's been the story for us, you know, as as collaborators as well. But in terms of working with everyone is that, you know, it might not be Irene's a, it might not be my B, but we always find, like, the working through that, we always come up with something better with a C. What you just described is one of the, look, one of the assets and liabilities of theater is it's a collaborative art form, right? So we get all these great people to think about, but you can fall into this group think of, like, 20 people staring at something and no one wants to say, this isn't working. <laughs> and so you have to stand up and say, no, 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 this is not going to work. This is my baby and I'm not going to allow it to happen. So good for you, because I've certainly seen a lot of shows on stages here in New York where I've been like, did no one <laughs> see <laughs> no one? what yeah. is happening on the stage right now? Talk to me a little bit about those actors as well. So you have an incredible cast, Chad and totally. Jen and Rodney and all these people. Did you expect the changes or the input that you get from cast members along the way? Did they... Did you write something like, oh, this is going to come out a certain way. I know how this is going to be. And then the actor brought something totally different that scared you at first or take you in any new directions as a as a writer? There's been, I mean, the actors talk about it because because so much of the show is at least inspired by verbatim text, even though we've changed it uh, significantly. But it, but it comes from real people who we have a really clear vision in our head to say nothing of the, you know, the student workshops that we've been through. So there's a lot, like, there's a lot of past lives in our head when we look at the line on the page but Chris really gave the cast you know sort of carte blanche to create their own characters from the page rather than trying to do doppelgangers or trying to copy something that we had researched and what they always say is how surprising they are to come face to face with the real people and realize they're playing them regardless so it's that's that's been interesting for us is to sort of you know test what they're playing against our own memories of it and, and decide what's theatrical and what isn't but they've all asked questions along the way and that's you know and and then there's been a million you know we have so many characters that we're trying to tell all at once that we like along the way we've been like oh you're talking to yourself in this scene because you're playing <laughs> three characters and then you know so we have to work that out but they've also helped us make things work i, I remember 
There was a moment in La Jolla when Katrina Bromley, who plays Bonnie, there was a moment when Chad had to switch characters really quickly. And like he's standing stage center, and the next scene he's supposed to be somebody else. And, and yeah, yeah, and there was this, and there was this moment where you could sense in the room we were about room, to get sent away to <laughs> to do rewrites, and and we were like, uh, we we've messed this up. And Katrina said, "What if I just take off his jacket?" And and she and this it's. She just pulls his jacket off, and everyone in the room was like, oh. And you could see the entire cast go, oh, that's what this show is going to be. This show is going to be, there's certain moments when we're the stars, and there's other moments when we're the dressers, we're the people who are ripping off the jackets. And suddenly, handing a prop. And handing yeah, a prop, yeah. and hiding a prop, and moving a chair. And, and suddenly it became this collaborative thing, and uh, and we really discovered the, you know how theatrical it can be. You literally can just change a character by pulling a jacket off really quickly, and suddenly the audience is like, well, that's Garth. No, him, he doesn't wear the jacket. And you don't have to do anything. And that, and that, you know, yeah, that saved us some rebates. <laughs> what I love about that concept, too, is it for me, is the metaphor for the entire piece. I mean, it's every it's people helping people along the way tell this story and yeah. just get through life. And that's yeah. what I just loved about it. I was like just amazed, just like them helping them get pampers or whatever they're, right? they're getting. They're helping them with a jacket. They're helping them with a prop. It's just it's incredible how that, that just carries through the entire piece. Chris actually said at one point, it was hard to give notes because he would say like, so you missed this, this, and this, and this. And then someone would say, oh, that was my bad because I did this or whatever. She is usually right on that. And someone else would be like, yeah, she does a great job. I don't know what happened there. It was probably because I was like looking at my phone 10 minutes ago when I distracted you know, and he was just like, I don't care. You know, like, let's just, this is the note. Like, <laughs> so it's like, it's, become, I mean, part of it is, is it's, it's practically the same cast from La Jolla through Seattle, through mm. Washington to Gander itself, back to Toronto and here. So it's become this amazing family that's really supportive. And the, the, the swings talk about this when they go on stage, that there's this safety net of love and support and shove with love. But, you know, they know the show so well and know each other so well that there, it's this, it's incredible magic trick that they're all doing together. It's amazing for us to watch, even though we've seen it a million times. What was the biggest surprise for you for, for coming to Broadway? It's something you didn't expect. Huh. I don't know I'd have to do podcasts with this Ken guy. No, no that's cool. We get to do this. Yeah. We, have, we, have your, we have your articles in book form on our yeah, bookshelf. This exactly. Really cool. uh, I'm trying to think. The biggest surprise? I'm like, you mean the biggest surprise today? Like, yeah. <laughs> the biggest surprise... It feels like literally, I re-mentioned this earlier, but every step of the way has been sort of a live in the moment because we've been surprised that we got into Nantes. We were surprised that we got to La Jolla. We were surprised that uh, we went to Washington and that we could bring a Broadway show to Gander, Newfoundland. That we could. That, so just getting to Broadway was like, oh my God, it really happened. And then, you know, and then we opened and we're a critic's pick. And then, uh, and then three days later, the Prime Minister of Canada shows up, right? So it, Every step of the way has been a big surprise, and it's 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 hard to pick one because it's been pretty amazing. It's so small backstage. I think that was the thing I wasn't expecting the most. I was just like, "Oh, uh, there is nowhere to be." Okay, oh, not here either. Wow. Okay, I guess I'll be across the street at Starbucks, except for there's no room there either. Like I was just there's just no room. It's crazy. The stagehands are usually so nice though about <laughs> making room for you back there. Our, our <laughs> office is in the deep bathroom of the stage management office. We sort of like sit next to them on the toilet. <laughs> Yeah, that's charming. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm also surprised at how small a community it is. Yes. You, you, you walk down the street here and you see so many people. Uh, you, you know, suddenly you know half of the people walking past you, and it's really amazing. And, and it's you know, it sort of reinforces how important it is to try to be nice and try to be part of this community mm-hmm. and try to work with. 
within that because you're going to work with every and, and everyone. Like you just look at our block right now. Jen Colella is part of the record. Jen Colella and Tony Lapage are one of our swings. And Tamika, I'm sure, are, yeah. are in the digital recording. And Dear Evan Hansen that, that's playing. Nick Chocksky, who's in Great Comet, was one, in one of our workshops at NAMP. You know, there's this the interconnection. And that's just us, and we don't know anybody here. Right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I do think, you know, if Broadway was a university, like this 10-block radius would be its campus. It's like you're strolling mm-hmm. across the quad and you see people. Right. From 6.30 totally. to 7.30, you just see so many people with their backpacks and yeah. on their way to work. Right. Yeah. It's all of us wishing we could go back to college. It's <laughs> Avenue Q. Yeah. Yep. Biggest advice you would have to a songwriting team out there and creators out there that are like, I, I want to get to where these guys are right now? I would say don't be afraid of day jobs. You know, I think in this day and age, they say, they no longer say you'll have seven different jobs before you retire. You'll have seven different careers. You know, I've been a teacher. I've been a standardized patient. I've been, I've worked at, you know, Canada's Wonderland as Fred Flintstone. I, I've done so many different things. And, and I've had to say no to a lot of opportunities for advancement within different things. I mean, David was the manager of a marketing department at an insurance company, you know, but that gave us the money to put on said fringe show and, and the color printer. printer. (laughs) Yeah. Anyway. So, so I would say, you know, it's a different world than the one that they talk about before about not having a plan B. Like, I feel like, I feel like the plan B can save you. And I think it keeps you in touch with who eventually is going to be your audience and the things that concern them and the things they want to see. And, and so don't, don't hold yourself up and, and, you know, live off your parents' trust fund if you have that type of thing, which we did not. But, you know, like it's okay to be out there and learning things. The thing that I think about a lot is, is like, and I remember when we first started working with Junkyard Dog and Chris, everyone was, there's some advice that we read in a book about how you should approach it like a relationship and, and that you're going to be married to these people and you're going to be working with them for years to come. And we're, you know, we've just got into Broadway booth been working with them for three years now. We've known them uh, longer than that. Uh, we're going to be working with them for years to come. They have raised our daughter, you know, just as much as we have practically and carried her around and taught her things. We're married to each other and, and also we're married to our material. You know, it, like the fact that we started this based on a story that we loved rather than we thought a story that was commercially successful or, you know, and it's and it's based on people, people we interviewed who have become our friends, who have now become insanely good friends and who we keep in touch with constantly. There's a, there's a sense of I'm happy that we started this based on us loving each other and wanting to spend more time together and us wanting to spend more time with uh, with Junker and Dog. I remember our first conversation with them. One of the things that meant a lot to us is how much we laugh on the, on the phone. We, we, had, they, they, they were, we were talking about them producing the show and we got off and we were like, we laughed a lot on that phone call. And, and that means a lot, you know, and we've laughed a lot since then. And, and, and Chris, you, you know, one of the first things he did was say, I want to go out to Newfoundland. And we went out there and he helped us uh, put together the car seat in the back of the car. And he's like held Molly and has learned a lot about kids and <laughs> you know, uh, along the way. And it's been like a marriage the entire way. And so it, it, there's something about starting it with love that, that is, I, I think for us at least, turned into something that we didn't ever expect. But it's amazing. Yeah, we obviously don't thrive much on <laughs> being, being, uh, we're, yeah, we surround ourselves with nice people because that's probably life's too short. Yeah, that's true. 
Yeah. Randy is probably one of the best laughs around. So well, there the, you go. Right? <laughs> Find yourself a producer who will stand at the back of the house every show and laugh like crazy. It's amazing. And your day job comment is great. When I remember when you're in town years ago, went to Broadway, one of the authors, I forget which one, kept his day job, I think, while the show was leading up to previews because he's like, I just don't know what what's going to happen here, so I'm just going to it's going to keep me sane. Yeah, it's true. Shonda Rhimes did that with. No, she didn't. I'm uh, getting mixed up. It, oh, it was the, the actress yeah. in, in Grey's Anatomy. Someone was acting in Grey's Anatomy and was like, oh, "I'm keeping my day job. I don't know how this is going to go." I need to Google that Fred Flintstone photos if they're anywhere. <laughs> there probably are. You guys started off by saying how busy you have to be and plan your lives now. Any productivity tips or hacks? This is like a new part of the podcast where I'm trying to get to like. What keeps super busy, successful, productive people like yourself sane every day? Do you keep lists? Do you use certain apps? Uh, so we just started using more apps. We have a new one called Onward, which literally helps us track how much we're looking at Twitter and Facebook online, and like and and like helps you move forward. We've got we're, we've got a to do list called To Do List that we use. That's our that's our app program. But also I. I find like it's the same thing as gander it's like it's like finding a village of people that's mm-hmm. going to help you make this happen and realize that you do need help you know we just, there's just too much in the day and we need someone to watch our daughter sometimes and we need someone to help us arrange when to come to podcasts <laughs> and uh, you, you know you, and you, you need support and everyone needs support and and you know it can be back and forth but we we've we've found that relying on people has helped us more productive yeah and and the thing that and i've done both these things the thing about putting up a show that is harder than having a newborn baby is that when you're putting up a show no one shows up with a lasagna and says i'll do your laundry and wash your floor and why don't you go have a nap that would be really nice if if people's parents or neighbors could act like putting up a show is like giving birth to a baby and come over and just you know walk your dog whatever it is because I was so. I remember we were doing the show and having Molly at the same time, and suddenly all these people showed up doing things for us, and I was like, oh, "I'm just gonna keep giving them stuff to do," and be like, "I'm so overwhelmed." So just there's the lawnmower. So everyone, go out and have kids. Oh, God, first idea ever. No, no, no. Yeah. Okay. What onward is the name? Of it? it literally tracks how many hours yes. a day or minutes or decades you're spending on Twitter and on Facebook. Twitter and Facebook. Amazing. Yeah. Amazing. Okay, my last question, which is my infamous genie question. This is going to be a tough one for you guys because you're way too nice. Uh I want you to imagine that the genie from Aladdin pays you a visit Mm -hmm. and thanks you for putting a spotlight on Gander and producing this musical that's brought such joy to a moment in our history that was so tragic. And the genie says, I'm going to grant you one wish. What's the one thing about Broadway? That gets you so mad, that gets you frustrated, irritated, that would make you want to flip this table over and leave it and never come back, that she would ask this genie to wish away in an instant. I do. I I'm working with our babysitter is a young actress, and I was just talking to her today about about casting and how hard it is to be seen. And I remember myself standing in the non equity open call lineup, and I just wish I don't know what it is. So Jeannie, you know, how do you how do you make sure everyone actually gets an equal shot? You know, and 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 bring more jobs so that you know. They, that they can actually have something to act in. Because I, I just feel like it, you know, sometimes if you're lucky right out of the gate, suddenly you have all of these people on your side that keep pushing for you. And that's great. 
but then someone who wasn't as lucky out of the gate, but who was just as talented, is gets left behind. And and you know, it, it, it's just it's frustrating. It's frustrating, especially now that I've been on the other side of the table and I can say like, wait, what? How? Why? Okay, everyone has been here longer than me, so I guess step back. Yeah, piggyback on that. Our cast, we were really proud. I just got an equity diversity mm-hmm, award, mm-hmm. which we're thrilled about. Uh, and it was interesting. We went out with all the writers right before the Tonys and, and had drinks together. And that was wonderful. And it was eight guys at the table with Irene uh, on one side. And we, we have a lot of director friends who are really female director friends who are trying to work their way up. And it was talking to Kelly Devine, our choreographer, about being one of the, one of the few female choreographers. I wish... I, I would like Eugenie to make things equitable on Broadway because I think that would just make art better and would raise the level on a million different things. And I, I think that, you know, what's great is that everyone's working towards that. It's just, I, I'd like it to happen faster. <laughs> Both very good wishes for sure. Thank you again for being here. Thank you for writing a glorious musical for us all to enjoy. Thanks to all of you for listening. We will see you next time. Don't miss out on that big announcement we've got coming up. Go to theproducersperspective.com and subscribe today. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.